This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on LitHub Radio, episode 139 Children of the Disco. Today, we're going to talk about what we're reading to the Literary Disco's second generation. I'll present a few books that I'm currently reading to my four-year-old son, Indy, and Julia will tell us what she's reading to her 14-month-old daughter, Vega. And Todd will offer up his expert opinion as a non-parent. He'll also tell us the crazy search for a long-lost hero from his past via Twitter. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We're Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hey, guys. Hey! Hi. Wouldn't it be amazing if I was just like, and also, guys, I do have a child. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be a pretty amazing episode. <laughs> The Lost Children of Goldberg. <laughs> I mean, I who a, knows? You're full of shit. Who knows well, what could happen? I gotta tell you, like when I when I did Twenty Three and Me. So if any of you are on Twenty Three and Me, we can find out if we're related. Like I did have the sort of passing fear of ah, that <laughs> I, I did have some could one night be? stands, you know, like in the nineties oh, when I was in college. Oh god! Oh, I know oh, people like that you weren't concerned. To. Like you're not concerned about that, right? <laughs> no, I'm not. Actually, I think I'm pretty. I think I was pretty safe and uh, aware. I, I was time. not. <laughs> I made some mistakes. Um, oh, Jesus. <laughs> but um, not nothing that has come back to haunt me. I, I thank God. You don't have yeah, any well, I mean, kids this is happening. Yeah, go ahead. All over the place, like the ancestry. You know, once once ancestry dot com like did that, they dropped their prices last year, and I noticed that like everybody I know, myself included, my family, right. everybody was suddenly getting tested because it was like you know fifty bucks or something ridiculously cheap. So everyone wanted to do it, and um, yeah, I, I I've had multiple conversations with people who through discovered that they weren't related to who they thought they were related to. Um, like I know a, a, a very a very good director friend of mine who was like. Found out that his um, his mother, his father-in-law... Oh my god, this tree is about to fall on me, guys. The ground is literally shaking. <laughs> uh, so, so die while I'm recording this. Listeners, episode. about five seconds ago before we started recording the show, <laughs> we recorded the show via Google Hangout. There was a loud noise and Ryder bolted from view. <laughs> so let me tell the background. I'm, I'm, I record in a little studio in my backyard and I have this giant eucalyptus tree that is overhanging it. Um, and it's my, in my neighbor's yard and they never take, they never trim their, their tree and it's been growing. And they had a tree, a giant tree fall about a year and a half ago during a rainstorm. And uh, sure enough, it's raining and storming right now and thunder, and it keeps shaking the entire studio that I'm in. I'm just waiting for one of these giant eucalyptus branches to come crashing through the ceiling. <laughs> sorry. I'm so sorry if I'm a little distracted. But yeah, so I had this friend of mine who discovered that um, his grandfather was not his grandfather. Oh, my God. Yeah. And he's like, turns out I'm Jewish. Oh, oh man. Cool. <laughs> yeah. add, Never knew. Add one more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. But then uh, his grandmother, I think, was still alive. So they were able to sort of like, you know, talk to her about who it was. Right. That, you know, she probably was the father because she she never knew my which which guy. My pharmacist, uh, Shane, uh, who listens to the show. Hi, Shane. Um, He got on 23andMe and he found like he'd never known his father. um, And he found like 10 half siblings. Yeah. But the so first he found a sister and sent her a bunch of messages um, over the uh, platform. So if you're not on 23andMe, there's a, a way you can send messages. But the emails that alerting you often go into your spam. And so he had sent her messages for like 18 months and she hadn't responded. Um, and then she finally did. This was like a year and a half ago or something. She finally responded. And then as the platform grew out, he found all these other siblings. <laughs> So strange, because what do you do with that information, you know? I mean... Yeah, it, it's, it's pretty weird. Like, you, you know, my dad was a scumbag, and so I, I sort of have this sense that, oh, eventually we're going to... There's going to be someone else on there that's that's a sibling. Um, I've got a lot of really close cousins that we don't know who they are, and my sisters and I are just like... Well, it's, it's so here's the thing. It's always great to have in your family one person who's the archivist, who's willing to go do all the hard work and search everything out. Mm. And so my sister, Linda, is that person. And so I'll be like, who's Brittany? And she'll be like, oh my God, I think it's someone had an affair, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then just be like, oh yeah, that's my cousin we forgot about. So there's always like an elaborate story we think that there was. And then it's just like, oh yeah, we met her in like 1979. Oh well. Yeah. But guys, can I tell you about something crazy? Yes, please do. Is this going to be the bus driver yes, story? Yes, the bus driver story. story. Yes, yes. Okay. all right. Let's hear the bus driver okay. story. Go. Okay. So, um, Northridge earthquake was 25 years ago, uh, two weeks ago. 20, was the 25-year anniversary two weeks ago. Um, and so there's a bunch of stories about the earthquake on, on the news and everything. Um, so the earthquake happened January 17th, 1994. Um, so we're recording a couple weeks after that. Um and every year around this time, you know, like everyone on Facebook or whatever puts up their memories of where they were for the earthquake and everything. And every year around this time, I'm reminded of this crazy story of what happened to me on the day of the earthquake um, and subsequently. And so I finally decided to find this person who's in the story. So I put the story up on Twitter and it's been viewed about a million times on Twitter subsequently. And and this is one of those times where when I, when I say about a million, I'm not actually being um, hyperbolic. I mean, it's actually been viewed about a million times. <laughs> <laughs> so that's cool. Um, so let me tell you the story and then I'll tell you the, the, what's happened subsequently. So during um, January, every year there'd be a ski trip that um, all the fraternities and sororities would go on at Cal State Northridge. But it'd be Cal State Northridge and UCLA and USC. Um, and they'd bus us all up from LA to Lake Tahoe. They'd put us up in all these condos and stuff. And there were thousands of us at these bus trips. Um, so this particular bus trip in 1994... Um, they had everyone at CSUN go and park their cars in this brand new, just open, gleaming parking structure called Lot C um, on the campus of Cal State Northridge. That's where we were all supposed to leave our cars for the week that we were gone. Fortunately, I lived about a block away, so I just walked over with my bag and my skis and stuff to the parking lot um, from the fraternity house where I lived, along with like 
15 of my friends, but a bunch of people that I knew um, went and parked their cars in the sea lot, um, which was a, it was a forced, it was a four story structure <laughs> that had just been uh. built on the campus of Cal State Northridge. Um, uh. So they put us on these, <laughs> they put us on these buses. There were these like luxury liner buses. Cause it's a, it's a pretty long drive from LA to Tahoe. It's about, if you're in your car, it would probably take you about, you know, six to eight hours, something like that. But in one of these big ass buses, it's like a 10 hour drive. Um, so it's like this big alcohol fused bus trip that we all take up there. We had a really cool bus driver who I think uh, was named Reggie. Um, he was African American. He was in his mid to late thirties, maybe early forties. Um, but he was really cool. You know, the, the bus drive up, you know, he, he let us act stupid and crazy and everything, but you know, he was down for us to have a good time and and wasn't too stringent on the rules and everything. So, you know, like when we got off the bus in Tahoe, everyone drunk and having vomited in, in the bus already, like we tipped him and we were, we were like actual good people to Reggie. Which is unusual when you get a bunch of frat guys together. Yeah. What a um, tale. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that alone. That's the story. That's the story. <laughs> 100 frat He dudes was nice. Todd right was thing. a good frat <laughs> yeah. Bunch of guys named Zach and Chad did the right thing. And Todd. And Todd. Um, Brad, however, fucked oh. off. He was doing terrible shit. Um, <sighs> so... We have this, but we have this trip up there. Soul Asylum plays a concert. I mean, like that's so how many people were there. There was thousands of people. So on the morning of January seventeenth, um, we woke up about six o'clock in the morning, and everyone started to get ready. You know, you you get on these shuttle buses that the same person drove um, to the slopes, and you'd ski from like eight o'clock in the morning until five o'clock at night. So we all got up about six, and we start turning on the TVs. And they start showing the footage of the Northridge earthquake. And the first vision that they showed, I remember this as clear as day, is they showed the parking structure in the sea lot, which had collapsed. This four-story <laughs> structure was now a one-story structure and had tipped over completely. And everyone was like, holy shit, my car's in there. And, and you could see all the fires burning um, because you, it was a huge earthquake. So it was 6.7 on the Richter scale. It destroyed the San Fernando Valley um, and destroyed the university. The, the college was out of commission for, for months um, and then they rebuilt it over the course of a decade. They then showed um, the Northridge Meadows apartment complex, which was across the street from where I lived. It was directly across the street and Northridge Meadows had been a, uh, a five or six story apartment complex and it had pancaked down into two stories so when they showed it on camera, it looked like a two-story apartment complex, but it wasn't. And I think a dozen people had died in there, and something like 56 people were injured. And then they showed all the other apartment complexes and houses surrounding it, and all of them were pancaked and destroyed. And, you know, all the roofs had caved in. And all of us are were waking up to get on these ski buses, and we're like, holy shit. This is our entire neighborhood is destroyed. Like every single house that we lived in is destroyed. All the apartment buildings that we lived in are destroyed. Um, Where we parked has collapsed into a one-story thing. So this is 1994. We don't like have a lot of cell phones. Most people don't have cell phones. I had a pager, but not a cell phone. Work through that. I'd I'd be like, ah, girl's paging me. I got to find a pay phone. Get back at her. Uh... (laughs) 
Which is maybe why I'm concerned about 23andMe. Exactly. She'll find me on 23andMe in 25 years. Was your, did you have a pager? 760-641. Um, so we all start freaking out. We can't get through to our families. I start calling my sisters and my brother. I can't get through. No one can get through. And all of the newscasts, you know, the, the, so this is the other thing, is all of the freeways coming into L.A. through the San Fernando Valley have been damaged. So... The 5 Freeway, which is the main artery coming into Southern California from Northern California, which is what we drove out on, has broken off in the middle. Um, and there's a very famous story of it. It collapsed in the middle as a cop was driving over it, and the cop ended up falling through and dying. A bunch of people died on the 5. The only lucky thing is that the earthquake happens early in the morning. That there wasn't rush hour traffic. So we're seeing all these pictures of the highways. We're like, holy shit, how are we even ever going to get back to L.A.? Um, and everyone's freaking out. So we all assemble where we're supposed to meet the buses. And it's it's like the... You were making this story so long. <laughs> you were taking like a a 10, thre- a 10 tweet thread. Oh, no, it was like <laughs> it was 20 tweets. Each... 23... Okay, each tweet is becoming like a two minute long. But point. it's going to get better. <laughs> so... We go out, we go out, this is like the moth, but you're not drunk. We go out to this area, and there's a dude in a puffy vest with like a wedge haircut on a microphone, and he's like, bruh, you know, we can't take you home. All of you have lift tickets and hotel rooms, and contractually, we we can't take any of you home. You have to stay here. And we're like, that's fucking crazy. And so everyone's like, oh, that's that's nuts, whatever. Our bus driver, Reggie, grabs the mic from the guy and he says, I got a wife and I got a kid in Los Angeles and I can't get a hold of them. All of y'all can do what you want and you're probably going to fire my ass. But this bus, this bus right here, it's going back to Los Angeles. And anyone that wants to go back to L.A., I will drive each and every one of you home. But you've got to get on that bus right now. And it was like a teen movie with the... <laughs> so it's so clapping. And so so like a hundred of us rushed onto this bus. We get on the bus and and like the, the tour company people are like, You can't take these kids, you're not covered. And he's like, I'm getting to my wife and kid. I don't care what any of you say, and these kids are scared, we're going home. So he gets up, we're all on the bus, and he says, Alright, look, I know you're scared, I'm scared too. Um, but we are in this together. So everybody share cell phones, um, you know, comfort each other. Um, I, you know, I, I'm just as worried as you guys are. So we're going to stop as often as we can to try to use pay phones. But my intention is to get home as fast as possible. And I will take each and every one of you to the front step of your house. Wherever it is you live, I will get you home. Whoa. And <laughs> we're like, cool. He's like, all right. Just so you understand, though, when I say I'm going to get you home as fast as I possibly can, I mean that. (laughs) We're like, okay, that motherfucker must have driven that bus 140 miles an hour. He was was cutting through little towns. He was passing people on two-lane roads, and we're all cheering and screaming and stuff. (laughs) But the problem was, we get close to L.A. County, and um, we've been on the bus now for about 12 hours. And, of course, you can't get into L.A. County because all of the highways are closed. And so he starts taking little side streets and stuff. And he actually ended up 
coming in from the 101 side of California. So he crossed Central California and came up the coast and came into the San Fernando Valley on the back side of it, which added two hours to it. But then to get all of us home, like he had to go into the San Fernando Valley. And Julia, you, you've probably never seen photos of it, but like the streets had ruptured up. There was just huge gaping holes all over the San Fernando Valley and gas fires everywhere. It was like fucking Thunderdome. And so this dude gets off the highway and we're, we were on Tampa. I remember this very vividly. We were in Tampa, which is one of the main through fairs in the San Fernando Valley. Just, uh, we were just north of Ventura. And there's these giant holes everywhere and fires and water shooting up out of water hydrants and shit. And he's like, well, let's see what this bus can do. And he just <laughs> plows over all of these things. He's going over big holes and slamming the thing down and getting loose and driving all over the place. And we're screaming and yelling and going crazy. And that dude took Every single one of us home. Wow. Every single one of us. Right? That's a hero. It's a fucking hero. So I was like, I got to tell this story. So I put this up on Twitter and it was viewed, like I said, about a million times. And a, a bunch of newspaper reporters and stuff contacted me. And I got some good leads on how to find this guy. And so I contacted, um, the people that used to own the tour company and they were like, Oh my God, this is a crazy story. We remember that day. And all these guys are like, you know, they're like 60 years old now. One guy lives in Hawaii. One guy lives in San Francisco and runs a theater. One guy lives somewhere else. And they were all there that day. And they're like, we remember the bus, but we don't remember the bus driver. Um, and then I finally talked to the guy who actually booked the buses. So I've, I've ended up talking to a lot of people. The guy who actually contracted the buses, and he's like, okay, it was the Antelope bus line. Um, my contact there died about 15 oh. years ago. <laughs> I was like, oh, my no. God. <laughs> he's like, and they've sold like two separate times to different bus companies. He's like, there's a, been a big consolidation in the marketplace of these bus companies. Oh, no. He's like, but if you, if you go maybe through the American Bus Association or some of these other national boards, maybe they'll have records of who was driving for the individual places. And then I got a contact at the Department of Transportation this week who was like, I might be able to help you find some stuff out about who, like names of people who were registered to work at Antelope bus lines. So it's sort of creeping along, creeping along here, which is great. And the response online has been wonderful. But one, one crazy thing that happened, I got put in touch with a TV show that finds lost people and puts them together. And the producer is in England. <laughs> and so I email this producer and I show her the full story. And I'm like, this, <sighs> is, the, this is the story. This is all this great stuff. Um, you know, I, I hope, you know, I hope you can help me. And she writes back. She's like, oh my God, this is a great story. And then she writes back and says, Oh my God, we're we're out of production. Sorry, best of luck. <laughs> I was like, and all of which happened while I was asleep, and I was like, oh, like they had just found out they're out of production. Oh my God. So I'm I'm hoping Ann Curry can help me next. <laughs> so anyway, if any of you were in Los Angeles in 1994 um, and had a friend who was a bus driver for Antelope Bus Lines and drove a bunch of frat boys and sorority girls. Tahoe, 
and then told you a crazy story about making his way back to see his wife and kids and dropping off all these drunkards. Uh, tell him to contact me. I think his name was Reggie. I don't remember, but that's what my friends think too, that his name was Reggie. I can't wait. Oh, I hope you find this guy. I I just want to hear his side of the story too. You know, like it's. He was like, it was so crazy. It was three hours, and we were in Lake Arrowhead. Exactly. <laughs> and there were no holes in the ground. No, I, uh, we just. It was. And a, they were assholes. It was a. It yeah. was a cab. <laughs> exactly. And you guys were at a roller skating rink. So that's wow. my children's well, story for the day. I can't believe. I'm hoping my mic is picking up the thunder that is. is like rattling through. It is. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to die at any minute, guys. Please but don't. here's, here's um, the thing about the story, though, which has been cool, is I have heard from so many people online, people have emailed me to say, like, that, that story that week, because I don't even remember what horrible thing had happened in America that week, but it was something terrible, right? Like, that gives me faith that good people exist. To which I like, I wanted to say, I would say, yes, it does. Oh my God, it is heartwarming. But then I was like, well, he existed 25 years ago. He could be dead. <laughs> God. Yeah, but there's so, you know, uh, there's people who drive public transportation. I have so much respect for them. And I think those things happen a lot more than you think. I remember once my dad left his, I think it was like his favorite coat and the wallet was in the pocket on a bus on Christmas day and the bus like drove back to New York. And then he, the guy like drove all the way back to our front step. It was like a Greyhound bus oh uh, in New Jersey to give my dad his coat back. Oh my God. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. That's bus drivers guess, are cool. They have to put up with a lot of shit. Yeah. I, I actually have this weird enjoyment of watching videos of bus drivers who are just like, all right, son. You fucked up. <laughs> like, boom! <laughs> Popping some dude who steps to him wrong. There's a whole there's a whole YouTube library of you picked the wrong bus driver, basically. <laughs> oh, God. I don't think that's a rabbit hole I need to go oh, no, down. It, totally, it makes me feel good because like, some <laughs> punk will try to steal the money out of the thing and be like, what he didn't know was this bus driver had been in Da Nang for 17 years <laughs> doing psyops. <laughs> like, oh shit. <laughs> so anyway. All right. All right let's, uh, let's talk about some actual books, shall All we? Right. For literary I'm disco. Ready. <laughs> that um, was a good tale. Thank you. That was a good tale. Thank you. Uh, and a great use of social media, you know, connecting people. Yeah, I, I hope I find um, it. It'd be really cool. So yeah, so today we I wanted to check back in about kids' books because we did a kids' books episode, I guess like a year and a half ago, um, and man, I just a lot changes quickly when <laughs> you have kids. They grow up, and you're suddenly reading very different types of books, and so I thought it'd be fun to to for Julia and I to talk about what we're currently reading to our kids because they're at completely different ages, um, but I think uh, hopefully it'll lead to some interesting discussion. Um, should we start with Frog and Toad? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Frog and Toad, I this is a, a series of books by Arnold Lobel and or Lobel, I guess maybe. Um, and he, I, I found this. I was up in Portland um, last uh, last September, and I saw this at uh, uh, Pal's Books, and uh, which is the best bookstore in the world, by the way. Just gonna say that. And um, true. 
I like a part of my brain just exploded because I remembered the images and I didn't remember anything else, but I was like, I know frog and toad. Like I had read this when I was a kid. And so I bought it and I started reading it to Indy and he became obsessed and I became obsessed. And now I think we've read every frog and toad story probably a hundred times. And, uh, I just think these are the most delightful Mm -hmm. little stories. And it really hits, um, at the right age for, for indie right now, which is, you know, I, the three and a half to, to four, he just turned four. Um, and I, there's something about these stories that they have a, um, they tend to have like a nice little lesson, but it's not much more, it's not more heavy handed than like be a good friend. Right. Uh, and they, they also, there's something about these stories. They, they have a repetitive quality that, um, well, for instance, one of my favorites is there's one where Frog gets sick and t- uh, he invite and Toad shows up to hang out because that's usually all that happens is Frog and Toad try and have a picnic together or take a walk together and then there's some conflict and they work through it. Uh, and Toad's usually the grumpy one. Toad's you know usually a stick in the mud and Frog is the more positive, optimistic one. Um, but so one of my favorites is th- this story where Frog sh- or Toad shows up at Frog's house and Frog's sick and Frog says, "Can you um." Can you tell me a story to pass the time while I'm sick? And then it's just Toad trying to find a story to tell. And he splashes water on his face and he bangs his head against the wall and he can't come up with a story. He takes a walk. He does all these things. And by the time he's he, he goes back to Frog and says, I can't come up with a story. Frog's already feeling better. And now Toad is so <laughs> tired and exhausted from trying to come up with a story. He ends up in bed. And so he says... Frog, can you tell me a story? And Frog tells him the story of his friend who couldn't come up with a story. So he did all these crazy things. And so it has this like cyclical quality where you end up hearing the same pattern of events over and over again. And for some reason, that sort of storytelling quality is so soothing to my son and hysterical to him. He thinks it's so funny because it's sort of like it's it's sort of like a joke and setup where you're you're hearing the same thing twice. So you're kind of, he's like waiting for it. You know, he's, it's so expected. Um, and you know, it's not like a huge story. Everything is very slight, but it's very like happy and, and positive. And, um, ultimately it's just about friendship. Like most stories end with the two of them, either sitting on the porch or sitting on a rock together and just sort of saying, I like you frog, you know, and I like you too, Toad. Yeah. Anyway, Julia, what did you uh, think? Okay, so and I, I, sh- also... I should note, by the way, that I I read these books when I was a kid, and they were read to me yeah. for a very specific reason, which is if your you name is Todd, well, oh. I didn't have any friends. If your name is Todd, you get a lot <laughs> Everyone of wants to... you get a lot of Toad and Frog books when you're a little kid. <laughs> yeah, I had wow. I had okay. all of these, all of these. Yeah, I remember specifically the one you're talking about because of mm-hmm. a. And tell me if this is true. There's a point where he says. Uh, you look a little green, and he's like, "I'm a frog." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. Right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I remembered. <laughs> we should probably note for this episode that Todd has read none of the books yet and is just none. hanging in there. No, just, he's just jumping yeah. in, <laughs> freewheeling. <laughs> so, one of my favorites that I also remember from a kid, and it has that ending, writer that you're talking about, because it has a lot of them have this like false ending. And then they have this extra ending that's about friendship. So <laughs> the one where Toad loses a button and they like go all over the place. Yes. It's your, your classic hero's journey. And they find all these different buttons on the ground. <laughs> this this is just so funny. And the illustration's hilarious. Toad put the thin button in his pocket. 
He was very angry. He jumped up and down and screamed, the whole world is covered with buttons and not one of them is mine. So that's hilarious. <laughs> and then of course way. he goes yeah. home and there's the, his buttons like in his own house. Uh, right. And it could end there, right? Like, oh, ha ha, whoops. What right. you wanted was there all along, blah, blah. But it has this extra ending that I love. Oh, said Toad, it was here all the time. What a lot of trouble I have made for Frog. And then he like takes all the old buttons and turns them into like a new jacket and gives it away. And, like <laughs> it's just so delightful. And they're they're weird. They're like a little weird. Um, all of them, I think. And mm. so they're surprising, even though they do have that like lullaby esque quality to them. And that's the thing that I remember as a kid is like I always wanted um when I was a little kid, even when I was the littlest kid, to to be amused in an ironic way. Be uh-huh. you know? Which I think is probably um, some sort of extension of, of curiosity also for me because I couldn't read for so long that when stories are being told to me, I could anticipate some of the stuff that's going to happen because, you know, you start to learn how stories work. Yeah. Um, but when because I was, I, when I say I couldn't read because I was so profoundly dyslexic. Um, <clears throat> so, like, I remember those stories. Anything that had an ironic twist on it, I loved. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And that's what these are. They're perfect. Um, and, you know, they also, the, the language, there's no contractions. So the mm. language is very clear and very straightforward. But the friendship and the complexity of, like, the feelings that they're sharing are not simplistic. Mm. And that's what's perfect right. about the book is that they balance this, you know, like, the narratives are so slight, but they're just enough of a twist at the end that, that like, a four-year-old goes, ah, I get it. Something happened. You know, there, there's a progression. But it doesn't have to be this giant journey. You know, like, the biggest journey is we got ice cream and it melted, you know, and then we had to go get ice cream again. And like, that'll be it. But, you know, in the process, you've been on this sort of repetitive story um, with all these little posts along the way. And uh, I just, yeah, I, I can't recommend it higher for anybody who has a, 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 a either a three or four year old that you're reading to, or I think this is going to be great when Indy starts reading himself, um, yeah. which is, I think when I, I really encountered it around six or seven. Yeah. I also love the one, I think, a lot of books like this. So another one, have you guys read George and Martha writer? This isn't one of my books no, for today, George and but Martha. George and Martha is like two hippos. Um, and it's again, like a short picture book, but there's like five stories in it. They're even shorter. They're each like, I, I want to say three pages long. Um, but just like the simplest story, I'll give you an example of one. It's like, you know, Martha loved making pea soup. Every day she made it. Sometimes she make it all day. And George, her best friend, would come over and he, like, hated it. And then there's this whole drama where he, like, pours it in his shoes. Oh. So she won't see that he <laughs> so doesn't so like it. Awkward. And then and then, and then, then she's like, I saw you pour that in your shoes. How will you get home? And then he's like, I'm so sorry. I didn't want to hurt your feelings. And she's like, I don't even like pea soup either. I just like making it. So neither Aww. of us likes Aww. eating it. But there are these, like, cute little Similar, stories yeah. that... Yeah, they they cute is too condescending because like they take on this yeah. existential quality, or at least I find mm-hmm. Frog and Toad does. Yes. Like another one that I really like is um, like Toad waits for the mail every day, but he's never gotten mail. So Frog goes home, mails him a letter, and then tells Toad that he mailed him a letter. <laughs> like it's not <laughs> even about the surprise, right? It's just um, so it's thing. just yeah, it becomes not about like the plot, but about like how they treat each other and care for each. other. And there's also it's one just called, really nice. There's also one called The Shivers, which is one of my favorites. Shivers! It's like it's a it's a it's about 
uh, they're, 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 it's like raining. And so Frog and Toad are in front of a fire and Frog's like, can I tell you a scary story? And Toad's like, well, I don't know if I want to hear this. And then it's like, uh, well, the shivers can actually be fun. Like it can be kind of fun to be scared. And so he tells this story about how, when he was a kid, they met oh this big, God. scary so giant this. frog. Yeah. And, oh and, and the whole time Toad keeps interrupting to say, did this really happen? And frog won't <laughs> answer. He keeps, you know, he tells the story of this ghost frog in the woods who he almost ate him, but he was able to out. And then at the end of the story, Toad again is like, did that really happen? And then frog, ba- you know, they basically both realize it doesn't matter. Cause now we're feeling the shivers. And isn't that a fun, feeling and yes. it's just the two of them sitting in front of the fire and they're like it is a nice feeling and i just love that because already you know with with indy i'm always talking about like how it's okay to be a little scared of things in fact that sometimes that can be fun and uh guys so just like a little slight story like that so you know, illustrates it my sister karen would read me shivers that very short story that very yeah. children's book and then at the end she would grab me and squeeze me and go shivers and i would break out <laughs> shivers See? Oh my god. You remember god. it. I know. I know. These books this is like I, I think this is one of my favorite children's books of all time. Like, oh my I, god. It, and I had completely forgotten about it, so anyway. So I don't I I know why it's popular, but I wonder why it isn't like as legendary as something like Winnie the Pooh. I mean that's much, much older, but it just seems like it's a book that everyone's kind of read, but it slips out of our imagination. Maybe it, we encounter it too young to have it really stick, but it's mm. sad that it's That's not. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, on... well, I mean, look, I'm, I uh, have tried to revisit Winnie the Pooh. We did an episode on Winnie the Pooh, but I tried to revisit it recently uh, multiple times for Indy, and I think Winnie the Pooh is horrible. I think those books oh, well, are I love it. awful. Oh, my we God. We can't get so into bad. this. Okay. All right, but Let's but, I, but the argument I would give to why you know Winnie the Pooh, of course, has more characters, and it's also a, a world based on stuffed animals and toys, which I think was you know Disney was very effective in marketing, mm. and um mm-hmm. and, and for a while I don't know if this is still true, but for a while there the mo- highest grossing toy for Disney was the Winnie the Pooh series. Um, so mm. I think that the 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 toy factor really helped. Mm. make that like a sort of omnipresent set of characters in a way that frog and toad, like you don't hear about frog and toad stuffed animals or, you know, cartoons or anything. They only exist as this, these children's books, um, which I think makes me appreciate them even more. But Wow. Yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm looking up uh, the author <clears throat> just to make sure that he, um, Arnold. A, yeah. Lobel. I was, was reading a, about him. He was acclaimed in his time. Certainly he, is among a small group of people who have been honored as both an author and a, and an illustrator for the Newberry and the Caldecott Medal. Um, and he's <clears throat> English, right? He must be English. It feels no, like he's he was born in L.A. Oh, never mind. Um, died in there, 1987 there, at age 54. That's young. There's a tone that's really reminiscent of Wind in the Willows, too. Um, yeah, I, 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 you know, it, it, where it's like they're wearing coats and jackets, and you're kind of like always trying to figure out their scale. <laughs> Because, like, they live in houses, but then they'll run into birds, and the birds will be, you know, the size of real birds. Right. And you'll be like, oh, they're bigger. Than, you know, they are the size of a frog and a toad. They're not, like, giant frogs and toads, but they live in little houses, and they, they walk through the woods. I, it's fascinating. Um, and I kind of like that unsettled sense of where they are, how the world works exactly. Uh, all right, another book that I wanted to bring up from my childhood that I've rediscovered uh, that you I didn't hear that much about um, – and my brother, I guess, had to like do some digging to find this copy that he gave to uh, my son about a year ago. And we've only just started reading it. And 
Indy's obsessed with it is The Rainbow Goblins. Do you guys remember this book at no. all? No, yeah. I had never okay. heard of this. But when I was reading it, I was like, this is the most writer book I can possibly yeah. <laughs> imagine. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a by, I think it's Italian guy named Ol, Ul De, De Rico. And um, it, this book is much more about the illustrations than anything else. The paintings that make up this book are fantastic. But anyway, when my brother found this for Indy and gave it to him for his birthday or Christmas a year ago, I freaked out the second I saw it because um, I remembered the, the illustration so vividly. And I, yeah, I've asked around and nobody else seems to remember this. I had one friend who's actually a DP, which kind of makes sense maybe why she'd remember it because she's very <laughs> visually focused. And she walked in and saw this book on, on, our, um, on our coffee table was like, I remember that book. That's an awesome book. Uh, so I think if you did encounter this when you were a kid, it kind of sticks with you because it's so gorgeous. Um, it's, it's about goblins who can lasso the colors of the rainbow mm. uh, and there's just these incredible oil paintings that must be huge in in real life but they're just paid you know the size oh, yeah. of the whole page it's beautiful and they they have this like luminescent quality to the the draw the paintings uh and uh the other thing that i really like about this book is um the goblins are bad guys and you're following them the whole time and um there are not a lot of children's books sort of follow the bad guys. And, and not only that, but it also doesn't really have a hero other than the entire natural world. Um, because what <laughs> happens is the, the goblins are trying to go steal the colors of the rainbow and they, they make it to this special valley with all, where all the other animals and flowers have lived without the goblins. And they're going to try and s- steal the rainbow and they, they make their plans and the roots in the cave that they make their plans and listen and overhear their plans and the roots spread the message to the flowers and the trees. And then all the flowers and the trees help each other to rebel against the, uh, the, the goblins and drown them in color. And it is crazy. It's like kind of like this weird little fable, uh, like, you know, where it's an ecological fable in a lot of ways. Um, but I just, I loved it. And, you know, a lot of the, the where Indy's at right now, he's so obsessed with who's a good guy and who's a bad guy because mm-hmm. all the kids at school are into superhero stuff. And, you know, it's always about like, mm-hmm. these people are all good. And, and this is a book where you're kind of with the bad guys and uh, enjoying being with the bad guys. And I, I think that's kind of fun and delicious for him because he's made me reenact this book. Like we read it and then he wants to act it out and we, we play the goblins and he gets to pick which goblin he is. I'm the blue one. I'm the yellow one. And then we, we have to reenact the whole book uh, and get our comeuppance. It's really fun. You have to be drowned by flowers. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> on, uh, on YouTube, incidentally, there's a lot of um, people reading the rainbow goblins and, than having all of the pictures up on YouTube. Yeah, um, so worth checking see, out. Which is really cool. These are amazing paintings. My God. Yeah. It's like it's like great pastoral work. You know, it's just, wow, that's Yeah, amazing. and it's so detailed. Like I was saying, mm-hmm. they must be huge because you can look into any corner of the, fo- of the painting and see, you know, uh, horses detail, or whatever. Yeah. It's like such detail. And one thing that I found really interesting when we were reading this and looking at the illustrations is like it's there's no like close-ups in this it's all pastoral and the language is so like distant in a way myth making so there's no there's big mention of one goblin being the leader but like we're not getting like a close-up on his face everything is from so far away it's it's really interesting like I don't know if anyone would 
make a book like that now. I it seems mm, the opposite of every other exactly. Children's it book. doesn't. It's not like um, it's not comic booky where it sort of directs your right. attention to like right. one character, and that's really fun because whenever we revisit the book, indie points out different things. Like, we'll oh. Be like, oh, this little guy in the background is falling off the cliff. And like, we'll discuss and we'll be like, which one is that? Is that blue or is that indigo? And you know, we'll, t- it's so fun to reread and revisit. <laughs> and each time, yes, we're telling the sort of big narrative, but he's finding little bits and pieces in the, in the, mm-hmm. you know, in the corners of the, the, just the paintings themselves. Um, yeah, it, it's super fun. It's like, uh, it's like the Roma of children's books. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it's also, it really capitalizes on the, you know, like I was saying right now, Indy's obsessed with who's good, who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. And along with that, there's, there is something to um, kids, you know, like at, at his age, identifying, you know, identifying with characters, but also identifying with characters based on color. Because, for instance, if you notice, all this, like, four- to six-year-old TV shows and cartoons and stuff always have, like, everybody's identified by a color. So you have the Voltron colors. You have the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles have colors. Ninjago has colors. Uh, You know, it's like, I'm the red turtle. I'm the green turtle. This. Uh, It's so fascinating. And, And I think Rainbow Goblin's activates the same part of his brain where it's like, you know, Oh, I identify with this character. No, no, no. Which one's your favorite? Which one's your favorite? And I don't know that it's, that's in this case, you are know, you a Miranda or a Charlotte? That's, you know, we have to be primed early <laughs> Jesus for these God. kind of things. Charlotte. But yeah, I do love before I move on, like, and it is related to the next book that you have to writer. It's like this almost cold tone. This story is not told by, a narrative voice that like cares at all what's happening. It's just telling you what's going on. Um, and that's, it's really interesting. It's like, I can see that Indy wants to know who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, but it also leaves some room for just telling the story. It feels like cold, hard facts, even though it's completely yes. myth-making. Yes. Yes. I think that is such an important tone, you know, and that's something that like, Again, I can't stand about Winnie the Pooh is the sort of cutesy, like <laughs> baby talky narrative voice that keeps interrupting and like doing these little asides. I'm like, stop, just tell a good story, you know, or but introduce see, a cool but, character. So, so this is my question. Like if you guys weren't writers and actors, would that matter to you? You know, like if the preponderance of children's books do that sort of thing, is it because most people don't have narrative as part of their you know imprinted on their dna um no i think maybe i mean god i don't know I mean, how can i take myself out of my own frame of reference i guess but i, I mean the way i i feel like it's just been a trend because there's there's so much children's literature now right mm-hmm. like the, it, it's not a category that existed a hundred years ago uh literally like it only is since like the 1920s forward have like the whole concept of writing and reading just for kids really been a thing and i just i feel like so often the first pe- people's first tendency is to um tell you how to feel tell kids how to feel and how to think so it's like you know and that's I think that's just going to be 80 to 90% of the books out there. And I think that that's crap. Like, I think that that's, and I think kids will be fine. It's not like it's, but I also think that this is a really important time brain development wise for kids to start thinking for themselves and to start questioning and to start sort of, yeah, understanding narrative, but also 
uh, being able to, within that narrative, find a perspective or identify with certain characters or question uh, things and be a little scared by them or... I don't know. Like, so I'm, that's why I think all the books I'm picking for today are, and that I try and really find for indie have a a certain level of complexity. It's not that it's not like detail complexity. It's, it's sort of like a, an amb, an ambiguity or an ambiguousness to the, the morality or to the, the dangers that the characters face. Um, I don't know. I just don't like it all to be so cookie cutter and like handed on a platter. Right. This is really interesting, Ryder, because I agree with you, but I also don't because I think I love all the books that we're talking about, but I'm also viewing this as a really important time to teach Vega emotional language. And if everything we present to her is completely like cold, then we don't, it's not that she doesn't feel the emotion. She's going to feel the emotion, but I want her to have the language to say like, I love you in a Winnie the Pooh, like soft warm way you know what i mean in a way like rainbow goblins is not giving her any like feeling about so like well this i mean this is an age difference thing too right (laughs) i mean right now you're just trying to forge connections more than anything else right you want like eye contact and and uh emotional sort of trajectories in a story or in a reading experience i don't think I don't think what we're saying is in disagreement, but I think giving children and adults and teens emotional language and as wide a variety of emotional language as possible is important. And that's a function outside of narrative, outside of like interpreting what's going on in the story. Like I want different examples of characters saying how they feel, you know, and I don't think that stops when she's two. So Mm. I don't know. I like a range. And I don't know about you, but I read probably 20 books a day to Vega. (laughs) <laughs> Granted, 10 of them are Barnyard Dance 10 times in a row, which we'll get to. <laughs> but, um, you know, like one thing that's amazing about children's books with them being so short is you can have this like incredible sampler platter that adults who read don't really get. Like if you dig into a novel, an average adult might take a month to read it. And that's their one voice that they're living with. But a kid is exploring dozens and dozens and dozens of different voices um per day or per week and the rereading is so huge and important and important in brain development because they're like reinterpreting the same words locking in different words and feelings and sounds um as they do each reread um so yeah julia to your point about the um the the sort of neutral cold removed tone uh this is uh i should actually look go back and remember which one of our listeners we were talking about fairy tales at one point on this this uh on the podcast and one of our listeners suggests recommended a book called the uses of enchantment the meaning and importance of fairy tales by bruno bettelheim and i guess this is yeah. a classic mm. um and so i i, I haven't i read that in book, college yeah it's really great and one of the things he talks about is the um the value of fairy tale characters being sort of everybody's, you know, in other words, like Jack in Jack and the Beanstalk is like, Jack is just kind of like a generic person, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, and all the, all the central characters of fairy tales are, they're not detailed individuals with like deep backstories or, you know, they're, they're usually very much like archetypal everybody's that and that's an important thing for children to be able to put themselves into well and um, a, a kid doesn't have a backstory right like right, if you're exactly. five years old you don't 
you don't have any memory even. Right. Um, but also within the events themselves, there's a sort of neutral tone to like fairy tales tend to have, you know, villains and witches and evil people and evil stepmothers, especially. Uh, but, (laughs) but there's, there's a sort of like, um, there's a cruelty to the world that, uh, you know, is kind of, it's terrifying. Uh, but it's also like, this is just how it is. You know, it's just kind of like the world is full of cruelty and, um, and whether you survive or not is not because you're a good person or a bad person, but because you are kind of clever or can sort of interpret an event or just survive or do, you know, there there is a neutral tone to fairy tales. Um, and I think that, I don't know. I, I still think that that's incredibly valuable, but I know what you're saying as far as the emotional like communication and the, the language. Yeah. Uh, I'm just at a point like, now with Andy where I need, you know, I want him to be sort of questioning the simplicity, the oversimple, oversimplified stories that for instance, he encounters on a cartoon, you know, in a TV show or something. Totally. So I think what you just said is about the cruel world is a good transition to your final book that you chose. Yeah. Cinnamon. Uh, do you want to talk about it? By yeah, Neil, Gaiman. Neil Gaiman is just become, you know, we, we read his Norse mythology translation right. on the show. And now that I've, I've gotten into his children's books, every single one of them is unbelievable. He has another one called wolves in the walls, which is so great. And he tends to partner up with a different artist every time. So they all have their unique um, look and feel, but they are, I mean, Neil Gaiman is basically the, the contemporary myth maker. Uh, he's the guy mm-hmm. right now who is writing what you know you would consider sort of like classical mythology uh and cinnamon is just a great example of that um julia do you want to give a summary of what happens in cinnamon sure okay so cinnamon is about a blind princess with pearls for eyes Ooh, that's, um i'm out neil gaiman always with the eyes he always has something with eyes Coraline very creepy. Something. yeah are you looking at an illustration online Tom? i am i don't like this shit <laughs> <laughs> oh, also, she doesn't speak. Uh, obviously, her parents are worried about her, so they offer up a prize, Aladdin style, to anyone who can get her to talk. And basically, all these humans fail, and then this tiger comes in and is very scary and powerful, as tigers are, and then basically teaches her different emotions through licking her face. and. Nope. <laughs> scaring her and it's, it's he pierces scary. her uh, he, sa- he says like this is pain and then pierces her with a well, claw just on her hand and then this yeah. is fear and he roars and then this is love i think and then he licks her and yeah. then suddenly she could talk <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. And then if, a li- like, if a lion licks your face you find language pretty quick yeah and then so she's like mom dad um i could talk all along and now i'm gonna travel the world with this tiger and they're like well this seems like a bad idea but at least you can experience the world have a great time and that's the end of the book (laughs) well no meanwhile there's an ant that the whole book is like the naysayer i think it's an ant right is there a great aunt? yeah Yeah, yeah. she's an older woman figure of who's always like saying that the parents are crazy and that this tiger shouldn't be there and the the tiger eats the ant, but it happens off off page. The ant is like, how she's she's faking it. She can't really talk. The tiger didn't teach her anything. And then the parents are like, Well, you know, would somebody shut that old woman up? And the tiger just goes, I'll take care of it. And you see in the background of the drawing, the tiger chases after the ant. And the last page of the, st- the book, they're like, 
Uh, everybody was happy and nobody died. Well, except for the ant, who no one really missed anyway. Oh, God. Yeah. Jesus. I yes. love this book for so many reasons, but I think that, you know, it gets exactly to what we've been talking about, the sort of fairy tale quality that is this, like, wow, the world is cruel and big and scary and, you know, tigers are scary, but they also have incredible value and something to teach you. Yeah. Hmm. And it seems to be, you know, it's about experience and the value of experience yes. of both in addressing something that's big and scary and really not being able to keep it out. I mean, they're like, well, I guess this tiger's here. What are we going to do? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but also just like, I love the ending of her riding off with the tiger into the jungle. Uh, let me read it because the writing is really nice. Um, a crowd gathered in the town square and soon the door of the palace opened and the tiger and the child came out. The tiger walked slowly through the crowd with the little girl on his back, holding tightly to his fur, and soon they were both swallowed by the jungle, which is how a tiger leaves. Hmm, that's nice. Really nice. That is and that's how a callback to an earlier line where it's like he grinned like a hungry god, which is how tigers grin. Yeah. Such a yeah. yeah. So many great lines. Um, I don't. But doesn't this teach our children to put their trust into large uh, meat-eating animals when they really shouldn't? Yeah, well, I think I think there is a, there's something to taking a chance and trusting, you know, I think like, for instance, dropping your kid off at preschool and putting them in the hands of a teacher is a very right. scary experience for a three or four year old. And so I think mm. on like a really basic level, being cool with the idea that your teacher is going to scare you maybe or be somebody who you aren't sure is going to eat you or be your friend is the way everybody <laughs> feels in the first day of school. <laughs> This is <laughs> just just to be clear. Are you also saying like if your teacher bites you or licks you, that's sure. not cool? <laughs> of course. Okay. But I think as a as a fairy t- as a myth, right? Like as a foundational right. myth. Like, look, here's what my son's gonna like. He loves animals. He loves tigers, right? So he likes this idea of this badass tiger coming in, and he loves this idea of this little girl on a tiger's back riding off into the sunset. Like he's sitting there going, "That could be me. That's so right. cool," you know. And and that desire alone. The next time we read it, when the tiger is scary and every all the adults are scared of the tiger, my son is sort of on the side of you know on the other side of that, going, "Oh no, I would be the one who you know takes a chance and listens to what the tiger has." has to say right and that's sort of like again that's like bound you know ambiguity and like embracing the thing that scares you a little bit not being afraid of it standing up for yourself and learning from that experience like i i think that's invaluable but it's it's all wrapped in this sort of mythical fun tale right yeah but does it does the book also teach that lions think humans are delicious no and there's no lions in it this it's a tiger. is a tiger. It takes right. place in India or elsewhere in Southeast Asia. Yeah, but there's no doubt that the tiger is dangerous, you know, and, and the fact that the tiger eats her aunt is is part of that. Um, and, I, you know, <laughs> it's it, it's this they, they, the, the implication is that the ant is incredibly shallow and right. only she used to be a beauty. And uh, there's a picture oh. of her that uh, was hanging and she is like now she's bitter and upset because she you know, she never experienced the real world. You know, you get the sense that if Cinnamon had stayed sheltered and just been a pretty princess her entire life, she would have ended up like the aunt who's just 
you know, sort of turning on to the next generation and trying to keep them sheltered. And instead, Cinnamon's breaking that cycle by getting out. And so to me, the ant represents a, a sort of matriarchal control um, where, you know, women are kept sheltered to a, a degree that's damaging. Um, that's my interpretation. But- I will say, yeah, I'll finish your thought. Yeah, so I'm going to go, go in a new direction. I, as a slight, I like this book. But as a slight criticism, it's like, do we need another story about mysterious, silent girls? I'm just so over yeah. that. Brought you know, out by like, a male tiger to find her true self? Uh, the tiger is pretty genderless, I think. So we'll interpret it as female. Uh, <laughs> but no, I think it says I he. Just, I feel like these stories where like these like shrill women who talk are viewed as like a huge problem compared to our silent mysterious princess or whatever. I'm just, I'm fine with it. Um, But I don't think we need any new content in that direction, which is we should not get into this. My problem, I'm sure I've brought it up in the show before, like my problem with stranger things and 11, it's like, we make this girl character so like mysterious and cool. I know. She won't ever say anything. <laughs> and that's like her whole personality. I that's hate actually, that. So, <laughs> yeah. No, that's more know? of a prop. That's more of a, a, a trope in a lot of movies and, and TV shows. And it's because they want to introduce like a survivor of an experience, but they can't have that person explain what's going on. So they just make them mute. Right. Like right. if you think about like the aliens uh, in aliens, there's the character of newt who's mute. And like, there's always like, because, and that that's simply a function of the screenwriter wanting to introduce somebody, but not wanting to uh, have to explain the plot because they want to, you know, delay the information as long right. as possible. So sure. like in stranger things, because if 11 could talk, she would just be like, guys, I was in a lab and there's a student who's doing experiments on me. And like, the whole story would have just been over in an it hour. It was Matthew Modine. Exactly. I didn't even yeah, know yeah. he was working anymore. Right. And then he uh, comes I, in. <laughs> but I agree. I think it's a it's a dangerous like trope that has lasted way too long of like the silent woman, like you know, that's saved by the group of guys or the yeah. It's I and agree. I, like Neil Gaiman, come on, like show me an annoying chatterbox girl who's the hero. You know, he like does. you can do he it. He does actually. He does. Yeah. Uh, Wolf in the Walls. Wolves in the Wall. He actually almost all of his books that I've read have a female, um, uh, a young female as the uh, protagonist. And Wolves in the Walls is she is the badass in the family, and she's the one. Uh, I'll just quickly summarize. She is uh, lying in bed at night in her house, and she hears wolves in the walls. And she goes to her mom and says, there's wolves in the walls. And mom's like, no, it's not wolves. It's, it's rabbits or, or it's probably rats. Uh, and then she's, and then the mom says, cause if there are wolves, if the wolves come out of the walls, it's all over. And you're like, well, what does that mean? And she goes, then she goes and she keeps hearing wolves in the walls. So then she goes to her dad and her dad's like, it's not wolves. It's probably bats or you know, everyone in her family won't pay attention to her. And she's the one saying like, there are wolves in our walls. And then sure enough, the wolves come out and the whole family is stuck living in the garden while the wolves take over their house and the wolves take over all their things, like the brother's video games and the dad's saxophone or trombone and the mom's... That's, it's just a metaphor for family discord. About exactly. And then the she, right. and then she, the, she the, the, the daughter, the main character, crawls back into the house and she ends up living in the walls. The whole family ends up living in the walls while the wolves live outside until she's like, that's it, we're going to get them. And they charge and scare the wolves so the people have come out of the walls, 
scare the wolves away. And then, you know, later on that night, she's listening and she goes, ah, she hears elephants in the walls. So it's really a great, but yeah, I mean, and that's a case, a Neil Gaiman story where the the female protagonist is a super kick-ass girl who's very outspoken and, and, and really driving the story forward. Great book. Good. Yeah. Well, these were great writer. Um, and complex. Yeah. Uh, and emotional, and now it's time to experience what it's like to be one year old. I can't wait. Yeah. Can't wait. Hold on. Let me right. uh, pee a little bit. Yep. yep. I got a wet diaper. Oh, very good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. I'm not really sure where to start, but I guess we'll stick on our narrative. I have three. They're all really short, so I'm going to read them all um, because that's what Todd wants. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'll start with the only one of my three that is narrative, and I will say this is my daughter's current number one top favorite book, Um, and it's because one of the words that she says every day a hundred million times is hat, so she gets really excited. (laughs) Is it it legal for us to create an audiobook of this book? Oh, probably not. So I will read the first couple pages, and then you guys will get the idea. All right. Yeah. I believe that would fall under fair use. Yes. I'm glad I Um, asked that question. Although, actually, Todd, as you um, noted, YouTube is like a treasure trove of people reading children's books. Yeah, then you're probably fine. Yeah. You're probably fine. Read the whole damn thing. This is a book called Where's Your Hat? Abe Lincoln. All right. If you guys <laughs> oh, I can't wait. Look it okay. up. Okay. If you look it up, it looks like the South Park uh, illustration, <laughs> it but it's South Park that, style animation. That's is that great. Chef it's, with Abe Lincoln? No, that's Frederick Douglass. <laughs> oh. Idiot. Jeez. And that's wow. Clara Barton. <laughs> oh, All right, we'll okay. get there. All right, here we go. Abe Lincoln is worried. He cannot find his hat anywhere. Can anyone help him find it? He looks very distraught in these illustrations. He does. Okay. All right. And this book is basically about what everybody is up to. All right. So Frederick Douglass is busy writing a book. Mm-hmm. Clara Barton is busy nursing wounded soldiers. <laughs> Thaddeus Stevens is busy speaking before Congress. Let me note again. This is my child's favorite book. <laughs> That's awesome. No shit. <laughs> Abe searches the White House lawn. His oh, hat boy. is not there. I'll skip a little bit um, because we got Harriet Tubman, Ulysses S. Grant meeting this with Robert E. Lee, Sojourner Truth is giving lectures. Uh, we also have just introducing uh, all these car- all these people. Yep, William Stewart, and then it ends, and he's of course, guys, his hat was in his office duh. the whole time. And then at the very end, he gives the Gettysburg Address, and all of his friends are there. Oh, and that's the but end. That- but that's not what happened in real life, is it? What? <laughs> Did he lose his hat? That <laughs> no, he couldn't find his hat? All those people weren't there in real life, were they? No, it, um, at least it doesn't I end at the Ford Theater. Let's just put it that way. I don't think they were all there, but I've been meaning to the end of the book was just, oh, and then he <laughs> went to go see a play. He didn't have his hat, and he got his <laughs> and cap And he didn't peeled. have his hat. <laughs> so, I, so what do you guys think? I like it. I like it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's it, it's similar to We March, which is that book we've read. In that it's like propaganda for kids. It's yeah. 
Well, but in this case, it's sort of just neutrally historical. <laughs> and it's better than, I think it's better than the We March because it actually explains each one of these people or describes each one of these people. We March never, remember, it never mentioned Martin Luther King Jr.'s name, never explained what it was they were marching for. Um, so I think this is great. Um, uh, and, oh, go ahead, Todd. Uh, so for everyone that, that is introduced, do they do, does the book come back to them? Uh, there is a extra page on the end. All the social justice books now have this. At the end, there's like a uh, real description okay. of everybody and gotcha. a little timeline. Um, so you can talk I with your kid about it. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. That's got to be more for the parents who might not know who Sojourner Truth was, for example, right. Um, right. or Thaddeus Stevens. But it's no, it's every. Every line that I read was a new page. This is like a 10-page ah, book. Gotcha. Okay. It's 10 sentences long. Uh, <clears throat> the basic idea but, is to just get them used to hearing these names and recognizing the sort of archetype of the character, of these historical figures. So what I like about this book, I mean, obviously the little thread of he can't find his hat is thrilling to a 14-month-old. Right. But uh, what this does really well that is still a concept that blows my mind as an adult is think about what historical people and events existed at the same time. Yeah. So putting together Frederick Douglass and Clara Barton, for example, who is, I believe the founder of the red cross. Um, and then putting that together with Harriet Tubman and Grant and Robert E. Lee, you know, like, could you guys name off the top of your head that all those people how they intersected in history, no. you know, that's no, like, no. never. Yeah. You know it's what I a, mean? It's amazing to think like sometimes when someone dies, um, I have that thought of, man, it's amazing that we were alive when that person was alive, you know? Right. Or like I, I met, um, I met John Lewis and when I met John Lewis and talked to him for a couple minutes, I was like, my God, this man has been a witness to all of history of the 20th century essentially, mm -hmm. uh, or the, the history that matters to me. And just to be able to be in his presence for a minute and then to be John Lewis, like the line from John Lewis to Martin Luther King to, to Abe Lincoln, you know, like there's a line there. Um, and that's like, it's hard to, it's hard to wrap your mind around it. Yeah. yeah and it's rare that a kid's usually they're so focused on one person or even event that mm -hmm. they don't get that kind of cross section. And even the just general basic language, like, yeah, everybody was fucking busy doing their <laughs> important historical work. I, I like that, you know, yeah. like they're all doing their thing. They're all buddies. Well, that's overstating, but you know, there's cross cutting relationships and goals with this greater goal towards human freedom and empowerment. So right. that's Vegas favorite. That's a good one. She loves it. Cause she like says hat. <laughs> she says, hat is a word that she uses for like a million things. All right. The next one I'm going to read to you is a little longer. Um, and this is my favorite of all her books to read. We do read her a lot of much older books. Like I read her Frog and Toad and um, Cinnamon and all that. Um, but of all her books, this is probably my favorite one that I pick out when I want to read something good. Um, and it's so good that I discovered yesterday that they made a Reading Rainbow episode about it. Oh my. <laughs> um, 
So this is called Zin 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 the Violin. No, Zin 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 a Violin. Zin Zin a Violin. Okay. Yeah, and the illustrations are very like Toulouse Lautrec French uh, impressionistic. Okay, here we go. With mournful moan and silken tone, itself alone comes one trombone. Gliding, sliding, high notes go low. One trombone is playing solo. Next, trumpet comes along and sings and stings its swinging song. It joins trombone no more alone, and one and two, they're a duo. Oh, this is so fine. It's so well written. Fine French horn, its valves all oiled, bright and brassy, loops all coiled, golden yellow joins its fellows. Two now, three oh, what a trio. Oh, now uh, this is my um, this might be my favorite one. Now a mellow friend, the cello, neck extended, bows a hello, end pin set upon the floor. It makes up a quartet. That's four. Mm. This and is soaring awesome. high this is and moving device, in. By the way. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. And soaring high and moving in with zin 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 a violin, stroking strings that come alive. Now quintet, quintet. Let's count them five. Hmm. Flute. Oh, this one could be this. Flute that sends our soul a shiver. Flute that slender silver sliver. A place mm. among the set it picks to make a young set tet tet six. With wow. steely keys that that's, softly that's a, click. That is a complex rhyme, by the way. I know. <laughs> Listen to this. With steely keys that softly click, its breezy notes so darkly slick, a sleek black wooden clarinet is number seven, now septet. R- read that. Read that. Um, Sextet line again because that's a really it's 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 like five different slant rhymes. <laughs> the the flute, yeah, yeah here was we go. Was? Flute sends our soul a shiver. Flute that slender silver sliver. A place among the set it picks to make a young sextet that fit. Oh man, unbelievable. Right, that's unbelievable. Wait, here's here's uh, number eight. Number eight. Oh, everyone's better than the last. Gleeful bleeding, sobbing, pleading, through its throbbing double reading. Oboe, please don't hesitate. Come make it an octet. That's eight. Mm. Wow. Two more. That lazy clown, the big bassoon, he plays low down. We're laughing soon. Here, Grumpy, get your place in line and give us Nanette. That's nine. Mm. The harp descends with angel's wings, a heavens blend through magic strings, and when it joins the others then, behold, a chamber group of ten. The orchestra comes in the hall, they're on the stage, we see them all, the cello, harp, and clarinet, the trumpet, who we've also met, the oboe, flute, and big bassoon, all eager to get started soon, trombone, French horn, and violin, all poised and ready, now begin. The strings all soar, the reeds implore, the brasses roar with notes galore. It's music that we all adore. It's what we go to concerts for. The minutes fly, the music ends, and so goodbye to our new friends. But when they've bowed and left the floor, if we clap loud and shout encore, they may come out and play once more. And that would give us great delight before we say a late goodnight. Wow, that's awesome. That is Isn't that a perfect is so, children's book. That is so I, cool. When I think about all the things that book is doing, let me just yeah. like review them and you guys jump in. Okay. So there's a million books that are counting. And I'm looking at the pictures right? right now. The pictures are amazing. They're amazing. Yeah. So it's ba- your basic counting. It's teaching you what the musical instruments are, obviously. It's teaching you the name for every 
group of numbers for musical instruments. It's teaching you how each musical instrument works. It's actually describing the construction of each instrument. It's teaching you how each instrument makes you feel. Mm-hmm. And and then it's teaching you this incredible, like, poetic, lyric structure. It's well, crazy. Well, and then the, the, uh, the, the quality of the, the language itself is reflecting the sound yes. of the instrument. Right. That's like the, amazing. You know, that, like when yeah. it's like the clown bassoon, you know, it's like yeah. it's actually sounding like that. And the, that's why Zin Zin violin is perfect because right. you're actually hearing yeah. it in the writing while describing it, while learning about, oh, it's so genius. Jesus. And it's the, so good. And the, the, the rhyme patterns must be really appealing to a kid because they're oh. funny, you know, it's, but it's those yeah. same sounds so that they can actually repeat them and will be learning in the same process. You know, that's a great right. mnemonic Ooh. to actually learn what all those things yeah. mean. Because like Dr. Seuss sounds similar to that, but it's all made up words. Right. You know, like the musicality right. of Dr. Seuss is what kids like. Right. This is using that to actually, you know, not make up words right. uh, for the and most part. Compl- and instead, give them information yeah and give them complex God. language it's really it's complex great. language but it's yeah. fun to say it's just fun to, to hear those words yeah. together like bassoon yeah, a- bassoon's a funny word you know <laughs> <laughs> and like it just does it all but in so not a like aggressive way also the illustrations like every person in the um and this orchestra is looks like they're you know, a different race. <laughs> Half of them are women, but it's just like the most. It's doing everything that every other children's book is trying to do. Plus, you can tell this author spent forever putting this language. Yeah, together. yeah. Um, yeah. So who's, I just picked that up. Let's give this person some props, Lloyd Moss. Lloyd Moss. Uh, and I think critically, the illustrator is different. So it's two experts playing totally to their fields. Right. Um, the illustrator is Marjorie Priceman, and her illustrations are really beautiful. Um, and I just grabbed this like at Barnes and Noble. It's a paperback. It was seven dollars, and I was just like, "Oh, instruments, cool." <laughs> the author. I have read it. Uh, the author. What's that? Go ahead. The author was the host of a classical music show on WQXR radio for fifty Whoa. years. Um, he died Whoa. in twenty thirteen at age eighty six. Wow. Well, his book is amazing. Wow. Um, he he apparently was a classical music guru of television and film and voiceover and everything. I, the voiceover I get because it sounds like something you'd want to do in voiceover. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's so cool. Well, and there's a whole reading rainbow on it, honestly, where then LeVar Burton, he reads it, or Gregory Hines reads it, which is amazing. And then LeVar Burton um, goes around and introduces kids to all the instruments, of course. So everyone should go check it out. That's great. That was so cool. Huh. I'm so glad you guys liked it because sometimes when I'm reading a kid's book and I'm like, this is really amazing. I'm like, am I insane? You know, like, (laughs) have I just gone through a weird I love that. That, that That's made me happier than... Most things in the world of late. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you choose it as your your best uh, book of 2019. <laughs> you know what I'm going to do? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, uh, because I have this power, I'm going to assign it to everybody in my MFA program to read and write a 20-page paper on. Hey, everybody. <laughs> um, change of plans. <laughs> Awesome. Um, all right. Well, this episode is really long, but I'm going to read you guys one more. This one's also very musical, but it is the total opposite 
in terms of seriousness. And I will tell you, I've read this so many times, I can't even count. Um, this is Barnyard Dance by Sandra Boynton. Um, maybe Sandra, I'm not sure. And this is a woman who drew cute little animals. I looked her up because I was like, she has to be a millionaire, which she is. Uh, she started by drawing little animals for greeting cards and then started turning them into these like tiny little books. And did Indy ever get into them, Ryder? No, I've never. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? No. Um, here we go. These little guys. Um, they're like all these little barnyard animals and cats and stuff. Um, but these books are so addictive. They're like, I, I don't know why, but they're like, you know, drugs to babies. They Baby just crack. want them. Yeah. Over and over and over and over. And whenever we finish this, Vega turns back to the beginning and wants to review all the animals again. Yeah. Um, yeah. So has, here we go. Hold on just one sec here, just to give you the sense of this. On Goodreads, Barnyard Dance has 20,912 ratings. Yeah. That's a lot. Okay. <laughs> here we go. And let me present to you all Barnyard Dance. Okay. Okay. Ready? Here we go. Uh, it starts with an image of a cow playing a fiddle. I will not be describing anything else because I need to keep the rhythm up from here on out. Okay, here we go. Stomp your feet. Clap your hands. Everybody ready for a barnyard dance. <laughs> Bow to the horse. Bow to the cow. Twirl with the pig if you know how. Uh. <laughs> Bounce with the bunny. Strut with the duck. Spin with the chickens now. Cluck, cluck, cluck. With a ba and a moo and a cock-a-doodle-doo, everybody promenade two by two. Lots of little animals dancing together. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Prance with the horses, skitter with the mice, swing with your partner once or twice. Stand with the donkey, slide with the sheep, scramble with the little chicks, cheep, cheep, cheep. With a neigh and a moo and a cock-a-doodle-doo, another little promenade two by two. Pot with the turkey, leap with the frog, take another spin with the barnyard dog. Turn with the cow in a patch of clover. I'll take a bow and the dance is over. With an oink and a moo and a quack, 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 the dance is done, but we'll be back. The end. That's great. If you want to know what a one-year-old likes, it's that. It's that. No, totally. The book that that Indy loved um, around the same age, which have you read Little Blue Truck? Um, No, but I know Little Blue Truck is huge. Yeah, it's basically the same thing, except it has more of a narrative quality, um, but it's it's all the animals, and they all make sounds, and it's all rhyming, and all the animals, you know, help the little blue truck get out of the mud, and then they all end up, you know, the little blue truck gives them all a ride home, um, and so that, that's all the narrative is, but it's, you know, actually, it's a little bit more than that. It's about being friendly, because there's a big dump truck who's mean, and so it's, you know, adds the barnyard animals with the big machinery, which is like just other you know that's what kids are obsessed with at one years old it's so weird like one to two and a half they're all like it's animals and big you know trucks and big machinery uh and so any book that can capitalize on that interest i think is so great i'm gonna write a book about the industrial revolution (laughs) (laughs) and i i mean i think that Vega. so these sandra boynton books they're all like that they're like super silly another one is that she loves is called Eek Halloween and it's about chickens not understanding that it's Halloween and being freaked out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but they all have like the rhythm and the meter is really what they're listening for. Yeah. And like that, like pacing. Um, and it has been 
record it officially as a real square dance if you guys want to do it at some point. Uh, <laughs> yeah. As a Jew, I'm forbidden <laughs> from square dancing. <laughs> it's in the Torah. Um, but it's so it's so great to hear her like attach to language yes. as music and start to sort those things out. Exactly. I think you know, so much of reading at the age, you know, when they're under the age of three or four is, is just the act of reading, right? Like it's just the act of yeah. sharing a book together and sort of recognizing that there's a common, uh, common language and a common thing that, that outside of just you talking to your baby, there's something you guys can share together and read together and look at pictures together. And so I think, you know, at, at when they're little, they just, animals are so big in their world and like the idea of like little smiley cute animals and uh, you know using that as the way the way into the reading experience i just think it's so essential um that's why there's an endless series of books about trucks and Mm. and animals and um i i will say i don't know if i told you guys this don't don't make the mistake i did i thought it was really funny to um give indie misinformation (laughs) <laughs> about certain sounds that animals make oh god so like when he was when he was probably around vega's age you know because uh. you could ask them like what does the cow say they go Mur. so we taught him you know what does the shark say and he would go da 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 and then i just thought it was hysterical because we couldn't like figure out what the hell does a giraffe say and all these you know there's all these stuffed giraffes yeah. everywhere right. and the giraffes say. so we just taught him that giraffes say bebop boop and he still to this day thinks that giraffes say bebop boop. <laughs> and I don't know how to break it to him without just being such an asshole. Has he ever uh, seen a giraffe in real life? Yes. And he looked up at the giraffe at the zoo and said, bebop boop. You know, oh, he, no. out, out here where I live, the living desert, um, you can get up close and personal with the animals. And it might be an opportunity to disabuse him of yes. this. <laughs> the living desert where the giant... Uh, uh, giraffe walks right up to you and puts its face next to yours. Well, Greg and I do have an, an argument going um, on this subject, and I, I'm going to put it to you guys. Okay. What does a dog say? Ruff. Ooh, I would say woof. Woof, woof. Ruff. I say rough, R-U-F. And uh, Greg yeah. says arf. Arf. No, arf, 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 arf. is what the dog that's says Garfield. in Garfield. Yeah, that's where he got that. <laughs> Well, what is like it does a little make sense, dog? Though. Arf, a little arf. dog says, "Yeah, it totally arf, arf, works." Arf. Yeah, I say "woof" and "rough" and like "bow wow" are just out there. Bow wow like, is not is not what dogs say. Bow well, wow. that's kind of what a hound, bow a wow. big yeah, yeah, you can make it work. <laughs> so my, it's my it's dog interesting. Scout does this? Yeah. Oh, that's a good. I'll teach her that. <laughs> uh, but howls. it's interesting because. You know, anyone who's ever become even semi-fluent in another language, like, these words are different in every language, and you realize they're pretty arbitrary. Like, does a pig totally. really say oink? I've been really questioning that lately. Yeah, it's ridiculous. No, yeah, the onomatopoeic words are not as onomatopoeic as we'd like to imagine. <laughs> Do pigs say oink? Uh, I mean, I guess they're just sort of snorting all the time. They just snort and grunt. Yeah. So how do you represent that? But... um but yeah. oink actually looks like a pig also. And so I think huh, that yeah. like, the word itself is a good use for pig. It was interesting like how, how Indy moved from the sort of language-based impression that 
you know, when they're babies, you're teaching them, like, this is what they say, quack and oink. And he used to do that. And then, like, I would say around two and a half, he started actually doing impressions of the animals. You know, so it would be mm. more like, mm. oh, I'm a tiger. Roar! And he actually sounds like a tiger as opposed to saying roar. Right. Or, you know, that. So it's funny, like, at a certain point, they switch over to just the impression of the animal once they've actually seen the animal in some capacity. Or... You know, here's my hope that they just don't end up like my niece, who, when something is funny, says, Oh, LOL. No! <laughs> oh, that's my nightmare. Yeah. Well, and she's like, 20, think, she's like 23. Um, so this is the problem. <laughs> oh my God, that's so funny. LOL. Well, uh, I think the moral of today's episode is that we're gonna have to read Indy and Vega and every other kid we know a million books so they have a lot more language range than that. <laughs> the Tosnies. literary disco is produced and edited by justin alvarez for lit hub radio you can reach out to us directly on twitter at literary disco happy reading everybody thanks for listening